Our previous two presentations focused on the head of department role, and Kelly and I are presenting on some research that's built on notions of credibility and prestige in higher education, where we had initially focused on the, those notions in relation to academics um, and what they thought about their role um, and, and in terms of their leadership. Uh, then Kelly and I took that and looked at how that phased with mid-career academic women looked at the lens of gender and prestige and credibility. <clears throat> and then as these hallway conversations go, um, <laughs> oh, that's really interesting. Um, and Kelly and I both started encountering <clears throat> these individuals within institutions who were seeming to have increasing power over a lot of decision making within universities that we termed senior professional leaders. Uh, so what we'll talk about is they have a variety of titles and roles. Um, depending on what part of the sector you're in, they can be secretary, registrar, chief operating officer, officer. Op <laughs> officer. They, they might be, they might have a DVC title, they might have a PVC title, um, so lots of different titles, but generally what I say is they're in charge of the administrative side of the university. Um, and how broad that scope may be, may differ. Um, what's interesting in the US a lot of times, if you see um, an organizational chart of the university. They have a president who looks out, a provost who looks in, and then a head of the academic side and a head of the admin side. And it's really clear. And those people are kind of on two equal roles. And that's the university structure of a lot of, you know, major US research universities. And it's much more blended in the UK, but I think, you know, shifting the models. So who are these people, these senior professional leaders? Um, so we got funding from the society to interview them. Um, we interviewed 30, which was <coughs> shockingly excessive <laughs> um, for individuals in really unique roles. We definitely could have done 10. <laughs> we were like, we had such research d rich data, but we'd said we would do 30. So we kept kind of plowing on. Um, so it was an incredible data set to have um, 30 interviews with people in these kind of very senior roles. Interestingly, very keen to talk to us. Uh, sometimes it's a struggle. I've done a lot of student research and have begged with everything under the sun to try and get students to complete research, but fascinated this group of people were really interested in participating. And we've presented back to them quite a few times now in various forms. Yeah. Yeah. And they want to hear about themselves too. Um, so a lot of this is about, um, it builds on the sessions from this morning about how contemporary HEIs are managed and led, um, where power resides. And we were interested in how credibility is gained um, without some of the markers of prestige that academics have. So suddenly if you're at a top table um, with other people with lots of letters after their names and titles, how do you kind of have prestige to make <coughs> claims about things that are increasingly in the academic space, um, program structure, curriculum, um, institutional approaches to REF and TEF, uh, where you're actually not an academic and you don't have any of the academic markers of prestige. Um, so where do you get that credibility to make decisions? Um, that's what we were looking at. Um, so when we asked them, this isn't what other people said about them, <laughs> this is what they said about themselves, <laughs> about the, their key characteristics. Uh, a lot of them, I mean, it's trustworthy. Um, it seems kind of like a fluffy word, 
but a lot of people spoke really passionately about how they were someone they can trust. When I say something, that's true. And a lot of them were kind of like, you can go and ask other people in this corridor and they'll tell you the same thing. You know, they were really, you know, kind of my word is my bond. And when I say this, I mean this. Um, interesting, they talked about sometimes academic qualifications being helpful. But I was just talking to Ian about this over lunch. That actually at this level, some of them said, I'm not valued in this space because of maybe a PhD I've done or haven't done. So if I have one, it doesn't really come up because that's not why I'm at the table in my chair. So that's not really a thing. And I wouldn't feel like, oh, I needed to go and like get a PhD to have credibility. That's not, um, but the experience and the breadth of their experience is where their credibility came from. Um, they're problem solvers. Uh, in a lot of ways. So it was it was sometimes positively oriented strategic leadership, but I think sometimes that was almost seen more as the role of the VC. And then they were kind of all the problems. They fixed all the problems. And these could be everything from staff things, closing campuses, um, closing a student union. I mean, big, complex kind of thorny, wicked issues. Some of them talked about like a lingering problem at the university for like 20 years that no one could sort of solve, that had just been like budget lines being paid for decades. <laughs> and they were the person that finally, you know, solved that. Um, and really interested in that kind of change and challenge of kind of like, what's the project I'm taking on? So wanting these problems to fix. And almost like if I fixed them all in my job, I'd go get another job with a new Sort of kind of problems to tackle. So it's what's one person's headache. They were kind of like, mm, that's my bread and butter thing. Uh, yeah, but I will say when I played this back to them the first time I gave a talk at the Association of Heads of the University Administrators, which a lot of them belong to, they said, could it be a bit more than just that, Kelly? <laughs> we do solve problems, but it's so much more. Like, so fair enough. But what but they talked about was interesting thing. was... They did try and set leadership, I mean, kind of strategic leadership bits. But I think what they focused on, especially where they got their credibility, it was from these problem-solving areas. Yeah. Sometimes it was leadership in terms of, like, getting a bond for the university to buy buildings. She might have questions about some of the financing of universities. But, like, the ability to do something like that, to figure out how to make that happen. I would say, too, the other thing, the thing, thing that interests us a lot in this research is the divide between... The as I said earlier, the academic worldview and this worldview of people who haven't come up from traditional. Um, there's a lot of talk from this side about how academics aren't equipped to, be, <laughs> to do the problem solving. Often, that's what, they're like that. We get that that's not the, the way they think. They they come to a table and they make the problem even more complicated. So they and what really interests me is the amount of time that they spent talking about managing. I mean, all respect for academics and really get it, get the, you know, this is what it's about, but they're not, they don't have the skill set that we do. And, it, you know, so that there's a lot of management of, between the two cultures. Yeah, management of egos. Um, <laughs> so we started this using the lens of prestige, which was interesting when we used it with academics, the term resonated. Quite a lot, a lot of academics didn't like it. Like, they would be like, I don't like this word prestige. That's not what I'm about. And I was like, you just spent 45 minutes telling me about how many papers you have in nature. Um, so, so they would embody the principles of it, but like, not, not like it as a, a concept, but it would still, it was still a true kind of thing. 
Whereas when we talked to the senior professional leaders, actually prestige wasn't the right frame. What worked with them was credibility. Uh, so they didn't really say much about their jobs in terms of actual prestige and what was valued. And that, I mean, there were elements that came out in terms of their job, but it was much more about credibility. So that's actually how we've kind of framed the analysis of the study. Um, and that they were kind of known for the different things they had done. And their credibility for doing something else was what they had done in the past, um, kind of being senior problem solvers. Um, and where they saw a lot of their unique talents was in having the big picture of the institution in mind. And I think a lot of this is the way modern management works within universities, that everyone's in charge of their little chunk and has their small silo. And there's not a lot of people that get to kind of say, well, how does the learning and teaching strategy overlap with the estate strategy and the research strategy? And I kind of need to see how all of that fits together. Whereas normally there's like one person championing each of those but not necessarily realizing that they all kind of need to fit together. Mm. I, was, I interviewed one CEO who had a map of the whole campus on his wall, and he was show, showing me, like, so this is what we're going to do out here in this space. and blah, blah, blah. So absolutely big picture, and it just always stuck in my mind because I've interviewed academics before who don't even know where another department is on their campus. They just have, you know. So it's a really, and again, this was part of the discussions we had around the, the divide. It's like, if you're an academic who's come up through the disciplines, head of department, then head of school maybe being, you might not, it, it takes a while to get up to a level where you actually have an institutional view, and they see that as somewhat problematic. Yeah, and they often kind of thought uniquely they were the one who had that. Um, so we talked a lot about career trajectories, what was their kind of pathway up, um, hugely mixed. Uh, what what percentage would did we think uh, it was about 40 percent of people had kind of gone outside academia and back in i think it was about that um either for bits of roles or kind of fully like people had come up through the military um through the civil service um through the nhs uh some people from private companies practices uh, one chap who i loved came up through a construction company hadn't even been to he himself um, had been a laborer at 16, uh, moved up a construction company, became head of estates, and he was just the best manager. So when that job came up, he was kind of tapped to be like, well, can you be the chief operating officer? Because you're really good at managing things. So that's why he was in that role, was being a really good manager, not because he had, you know, a kind of broad HE background. Um, and some of them have intentions of becoming vice chancellors. Um, quite a few of them thought they would make better vice chancellors than academics in terms of what they think the vice chancellor role is or should be, which was quite interesting. Um, some of them didn't like the vice chancellor jobs they were offered, <laughs> which was problem solving. Apologies if any of you work in the universities that are basically one giant problem <laughs> that they need someone to come in and fix the whole thing. Um, so sometimes they said, no, I want to come in as like the white knight vice chancellor. And they were just coming in because it was like the red budget. <laughs> like at, the whole budget was red and they needed to come in and like just do a, a giant hatchet <laughs> job on that place and then kind of move on. So it was very interesting um, discussion around kind of where do you go next. Um, in honor of International Women's Day, um, 
But we, luckily, Kelly and I had started this project thinking we could just look at gender, and I'm really glad we broadened it because I don't think there we would have quite reached 30 interviewees <laughs> of just trying to do women in these roles. So we did get um, about seven out of 30 interviewees were women. Um, and one thing that came out actually both from women and men were that to be really successful in this role and to progress quickly in your career, you need to be flexible and be able to move. And some of them said, this is less about gender than more about your personal relationships. So a lot of people have what would be termed like a, a flipped gender family in terms of very traditional roles. So a lot of the women had a spouse who could move job easily, um, was in charge of childcare. So they were the kind of primary person who could dictate where the family moved. Or they had flexibility in terms of being able to say, I'll live in a B&B three days in a week you know, and commute back and forth or have a two hour commute to get the job that I want to be able to ping and progress quickly, which some people said, well, this is a gender problem if that's how you choose your life. But some people said, well, it wasn't for me because that's not the way me and kind of my personal family set this up. So it's interesting that quite people said it's gendered if, if you think in very traditional ways, but for a lot of people, it wasn't about gender. And they said, well, in some cases, a man would find it just as difficult, but that depends on your personal circumstances. Yeah. I think it's really interesting because I think I interviewed three or four of the women, and they none of them really wanted to talk about the gender that much. It wasn't it, it wasn't a big factor. Although we teased it out a bit, it wasn't a huge factor for them. And it was it really contrasted with the interviews we did with mid-career academic women when we were focusing on prestige. Prestige really mattered in the sense that it was holding them back in their careers. Their inability to get the markers of prestige as easily as male academics do, you know, to get invited to do the keynotes and and all that kind of thing. We know there's a really huge gender problem and it's really important to talk about it on International Women's Day. But it's just harder for women academics to show excellence in the academic sphere. They don't get the same invitations and the same accolades and blah, 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 blah. But for the women in, the, in these roles, they just walked the talk and did it. They, they did, you know, they got stuff done and they earned their stripes and then they were at the top table. And one of them, in fact, had come from like kind of almost FE background and it kind of worked her way up and just no nonsense like I just you know I just get the stuff done and then everybody's like yeah you're very welcome to be here with us thank you very much so it's really interesting yeah and a lot of them it seemed that the credibility on the professional side was less gendered than prestige on the academic side yeah from the perception of people in those roles so of course there's always a difference of talking to the people who are in the role yeah uh which is what a lot of the he research on women in leadership is talking to the handful of women vice chancellors on what were your kind of tips to succeed not the kind of breadth of people who are not in those roles and talk about the challenges but it was very interesting and a lot of people said you know there have been massive strides that you know this conference we mentioned ahua that where they all kind of gather together it used to be all men and is now yeah, yeah, much more gender balanced um, yeah. which is quite interesting. Um, and there, there was much more talk about differences in cultures between academics and professional services, um, or, you know, the, the professional side of the, of the institution. Um, yeah, a lot of times they talked about kind of the, like academics almost being like they were managing a preschool, you know, like they were just running around headless and they had to kind of corral these wildebeests who didn't really seem to know what it was to do a professional job, in their opinion. 
to blame for the neoliberal culture. It is not actually the fault of someone else. And I think a point that illustrates this was um, they often said they worked for their institution. Yeah. Whereas as an academic, you kind of go, I work at this place. I got a new job at this place. Whereas they were like, I work for. Like they kind of embodied the institution. I think um, that's hugely important because I think academics almost sometimes talk as if the university is hosting them for a bit. They're <laughs> 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 not paying their salary. And often their, their prestige doesn't come from their institution much. Whereas for these senior professional leaders, their credibility came from their institutional roles um, in a very different way. Um, so that was a very interesting small point. Um, They, they did like and appreciate the academic culture. So a lot of these were, I mean, senior professional leaders. They could, a, a handful would kind of just come up through HE, would probably be a bit stuck going to another sector. But quite a lot of these people would be qualified for jobs in many other sectors, most of which would pay more than academia. So they could take their professional management skills and go elsewhere, go in lots of different places. But a lot of them actually chose to be in academia either for this current job or for their career, because they liked the atmosphere. They actually liked what academia is and stood for, and felt that they, their job was part of supporting that, the kind of nice bits about universities. Yeah. Um, and they liked the culture in it. Uh, they did often say, I mean, it, I mean, I had a fascinating one of the guys who spent his whole career in the military, and he found academia to be much more hierarchical than the military much more, much more obsessed with titles, rank, status, who could do what, who could say what than the military. And he'd worked high up in the military and all through the ranks, which I thought was interesting because I think a lot of academics don't like to think that way of themselves. They like to think they work in flat organizations, but in reality, there's an obsession with, you know, exactly what title do you have um, yeah. and shouting about that. Um, so drawing on from this morning, um, we got a huge number of analogies and metaphors for the job, which I think as Kelly pointed out, it's because there's not necessarily, what is this role? It's kind of new. It's being shaped differently. It's different than what it used to be. Um, we got almost as many, this is what I feel my job is as this is what I feel my job isn't some contradictory. So some felt like they were the leader of the civil service. And some said, I'm very specifically not the leader of the civil service. Um, so really interesting conceptions of where they saw themselves. Um, and <coughs> you, you could see a lot of times there was a sense of being slightly removed from the activity and what they saw themselves doing. Like other people were kind of doing something and they were kind of, 
you know, where you get the orchestra manager, the theater manager. So I'm not on this stage. I'm kind of behind the scenes, but I control everything. Um, which is an interesting position a lot of people felt themselves in. Which was actually mirrored in our uh, attempt to find these people. Yeah. So some of these people are absolutely buried on their websites. I mean, if those of you in academic roles, it is, I mean, you Google your name and they're like, the whole world can find everything about you. Um, whereas a lot of these people, we could not find them. They were almost on like the intranet of the institution. Um, I mean, we had our poor research assistant like <laughs> plumbing the depths and then she'd sometimes come to us and be like, I found four people. Could you tell me which one you think it might be? Because like they were really vague on titles because they were so internally faced that there wasn't an external profile for who they were um, on the institution's website. Yeah, not always, but... Yeah, so, I mean, some, it was very obvious, but some, it was, they were actually really difficult to find who was in this role. Um, I'm sure everyone who runs the university would know <laughs> off, yeah, it wasn't that they were buried within their institutions, but not in an externally facing way. Like, it would be like, why would anyone ever Google the institution and look for this person this way? Actually, a lot of those people have the kind of responsibility whereby you do want to be that visible outside. Yeah. <laughs> so if something blows up in the press, you know that you're not the one who can give the answer because you've got the mandate to solve it. <clears throat> That's something else and give yeah. you the direction to it. So you're not the phone number that they want, you know, that you want to put out there. Yeah. But usually PVCs, you can find them, DVCs, yeah, you can fine. find them, but, yeah. you know, this group of people often... In some cases, not that easy to find. No, but that's exactly it, because the PVCs and the DVCs, they have a vote, they've got to say, it is their responsibility, they've got that mandate. If you're a chief operating officer, you don't. Yeah. You serve the institution in a very, very different way, so you're not supposed to be at the front. That's why you keep them. <laughs> they don't want to be called by everyone. Yeah. Can I just follow up interruption? How many of them were registered to go after the government? That is, yeah. they weren't my money by the vice chancellor, there are 49 of them that being voted. And they were the legal advisor on some of those things that go public as well. Yeah. So this was part of the shifting role. So it's what one of them termed the kind of unitary registrar role, which was kind of I oversee everything. Um, and I report, you know, largely to the board and vice chancellor. So I'm not just kind of with the vice chancellor. And that role only exists in that capacity at a few institutions now, kind of historically, and has largely been divided. Yeah, and has largely been divided into multiple roles. So a lot of institutions have now a chief operating officer and a secretary. So the secretary reports to the board and the chief operating officer works with the vice chancellor. In fact, this has almost become a twinned relationship in a lot of cases in that some people move with their vice chancellor, so they come as like a couple. <laughs> uh, you know, me, me and my henchmen. <laughs> um, or some people kind of said, a new vice chancellor is coming in two months, and so I'll see how long I'll be in this job. And I then saw that job advertised four months later, where I go, and I see that, you know, kind of first day meeting didn't go too well. And the first thing the vice chancellor did was advertise for... Um, the kind of their number two. And also headhunters, they talked about the role of headhunters now is becoming very specialized about the, the actual teams within a university mm -hmm. and trying to work out, you know, what role needs to be brought in and then what kind of person will fit in with that team. So the headhunters work at the team, the top team level now more than they used to, where it used to be about putting individuals mm -hmm. in just different places. Now it's about building teams more. 
Um, but most of them, so they did come up with this um, challenge that a lot of times for the role, you needed to have had experience working with the board. Yeah. But you never get the opportunity to work with the board in any other job than kind of the secretary. So it was a challenge. And some people just said, because, only because my boss got sick, was on sick leave for six months. And I deputized. I then got that responsibility, which let me to get like this job. Or else I never would have had it. Because how do you gain that experience? Um, so that was an interesting shift. Um, we tried to have them make concept maps. Um, we've done this with all the academics. We've done the prestige interviews with, and uh, senior professional leaders can't really make concepts. It largely failed um, in that we decided to kind of take it out of our interview protocol, but still offer some people the opportunity to do it because it went so badly. And our poor research assistant was like, can I please stop having to ask these really senior people to draw maps? They're really not liking it. Um, um, but we didn't get a huge amount of insight out of them, which was interesting because what they kind of wanted to, they were so focused on their institution and their role, they kind of couldn't do anything but almost like map their CV, which because they were in such unique roles, we then couldn't do anything with because it was just, so if we kind of tried to say, well, no, abstract what you do, not what jobs you had, they kind of couldn't quite translate what they'd done besides be like, I, Solving things. <laughs> like I led this building being built and we were like, we can't say that because everyone will know who you are and what yeah. that building is. <laughs> so, um, I mean, it is, it goes back a bit to that metaphor and analogy thing as to whether this is a symptom of the fact that it's, there's not the language yet to kind of like pin this back. Yeah. Out. To abstract out what they were doing beyond the concrete examples of what they'd done. So they kind of wanted to be like, well, when I was in this role at this institution, we were like, well, yeah, but we don't want you to put that down. Well, like, oh, Whereas well. if you ask an academic, show us what prestige looks like in your career. And it's all of a sudden like, you know, international keynote talks, peer reviewed, it's like so easy for them. Yeah, and they can abstract it very easily. But this group, that did not work. So that's kind of a lesson to those of you doing research. You try things and sometimes it works and sometimes it doesn't. Um, so we kind of wanted to give some time just to, to discuss some of this, which is, you know, this this role, what is a senior professional leader? Should they be the ones, you know, there have been a slew of vice chancellor resignations, largely because I think they didn't have this side of the space covered. It wasn't because they, like, lacked vision on redesigning the curriculum that those that a lot of the vice chancellors get fired when it's a kind of quick and dirty job. It's because it's... um you know, not taking care of what a lot of senior professional leaders think that they're largely responsible for or that they would be better managing than vice chancellors. So kind of what is this role? How many people should have this role? I mean, that was something that was being debated at a lot of institutions. Is this a job for one person or a job for four people? You know, being divvied up of chief operating officer of, you know, different bits and pieces. Um, so what traditional forms of academic capital still have currency? Uh, there were some vestiges of things like what type of institution you'd been at. So some of it was expertise. Like one guy was just like, I'm a cathedral group kind of guy. <laughs> like I've, I've worked at like most of the universities in the cathedral group. Like that's my niche and I'm comfortable and I'm happy and I don't really want to change. Um, more, more examples of going Russell group post 92 than vice versa. Um, a slight element of prestige, probably a stronger element of just, I know what it is to manage like a research intensive university is just kind of a different job 
than managing other kinds of institutions. Um, so, but there was one guy who kind of said, when I was head of a very prestigious organization, I got asked to talk all the time on all the interesting innovations I'd done. And then when I went to a post-92, no one asked me about my same interesting innovations. <laughs> so he was put on more of a kind of, it's overstating, it's a global leadership platform, but speaking at international conferences on leadership when he was at a certain institution and that badge gave him more credibility in the role than being in a more senior position at an, a university a lot of people wouldn't know outside of the kind of local context, which was interesting because he kind of said it was quite humbling because he thought it was just about his management genius, <laughs> um, but realized the cachet of the institution and what that meant. Um, and then we're also exploring these kind of new forms of capital which bring credibility to those making some of these high stake decisions. So when you have this top table making some of these tough decisions, especially in the current kind of financial climate, you know, how do these people get what they think needs to happen to happen? Very good. Let's stop there.